I don't know if like what level of artificial intelligence will happen, but there will be progress certainly, and it may be very very big progress. If there can be, there probably will be eventually. And so um, the question is, you know, how what should we do about it now? Like, it, like I don't think the answer is to give up. I'm Jeremy Lakash, a retirement community CEO living in Eureka, Illinois, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today we talk with a man named Dr. Kenneth Stanley, who wrote a book, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, The Myth of the Objective. And when I read that book about six or seven years ago, it changed the trajectory of my life. And for many years, Dr. Stanley and I have been in contact over email. I'd write him something that I thought, and I would always be delighted when I would hear back from him. But now that the podcast is going and it's strong and it's got all sorts of robustness and big conversations going on around it, I decided that I would reach out to Dr. Stanley and invite him onto the podcast. It turns out that he has left his role as a professor at the University of Central Florida and is now a research manager at OpenAI, an artificial intelligence company that is really pushing the boundaries on how we can get computers to evolve and learn on their own. And so what you will hear in this conversation is an in-depth but completely approachable conversation around what is artificial intelligence, where is it going, and how do we know if we have control over it. But after we get through some of these topics, we start diving into what Dr. Stanley knows from a personal side. We talk about raising kids. We talk about how his understanding of evolution and artificial intelligence and curiosity and the novelty search have impacted his life and what he thinks it can do for other people. This is a fantastic conversation, and I am delighted to bring it to you. If you're enjoying these types of conversations, you've probably heard me mention the Articulate Ventures Network, and just last episode, I mentioned a Dunbar number. We know that the network is valuable because we've developed a community and we have a culture that we're trying to make possible to grow. And we know that if the numbers grow too quickly, we won't be able to keep what makes it special intact. So we have decided to limit the membership to 45 people from the last time I mentioned it till January 1st. And we've already had a bunch of people sign up. So if you've been thinking about it and you've been wondering, is this the right community for me? When should I do this? I would recommend doing it now because we are going to fill up and I'd love to have you there. So if you'd like to learn more, go to network.articulate.ventures where you'll find all sorts of interesting people, activities, and a way to find a shelter from the tragedy of the commons that is the rest of social media. So without further ado, we are going to head into this fascinating conversation about artificial intelligence, the novelty search, and a conversation with a very interesting man, Dr. Kenneth Stanley. Ken Stanley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Vance. Great to be here. Man, I have never looked forward to an interview more than I'm looking forward to this one right here. And that is in no way an exaggeration because your book, Novelty Search, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, sent me in a totally different trajectory in my life. And uh, I would say there is no end to the number of things that changed because I read that book. So I have so much I want to talk with you about. 
Ah, well, that is exciting to hear, and, and definitely you know, makes me makes me really glad to be here to have this opportunity. So let's start off for a lay audience that has never heard of this concept, novelty search. How do you open this this very complicated idea up to people that it's a totally new idea? <clears throat> sure. So novelty search is actually the name of an algorithm, um, but I don't want that to be distracting. So algorithm and computer science and stuff like that, because the interesting about this algorithm, whereas most algorithms are kind of obscure things that only people working computers would think about, this algorithm actually had implications for like how you might live your life or how we might think about changing things the way that we do things in society. Um, and that's what's I think unique about it and probably why, why, why you're thinking this could be a, this could be an interesting show. Um, and so novelty search was about a realization that we had, um, which we, we, we found out because of doing experiments with, it, with certain kinds of algorithms, that sometimes the best way to achieve something is to not be trying to achieve it. So I guess that takes a little bit to digest. So just to say that again, like sometimes like it's better to actually not be trying to achieve the thing that you ultimately hope to achieve if you want to achieve it. Um, and so this is a very counterintuitive thing. It almost sounds like Zen or something like that. Um, but we found it to be true in um, a lot of experiments at first with computers. Um, and later we saw how this connects to um, actually uh, doing things in the real world. Um, but to, to actually connect it to the, to the computer experiments, just to make a, a brief introduction of what it actually is about, it basically is saying, what we're gonna do, since we're not gonna actually try to do something specific, instead, we're gonna just try to do something new or novel, which is why it's called novelty search. Um, and what we're gonna always be trying to do every step of the way is to try to get more different from what we've done before than we are right now. And what this should do then is it should lead to us making discoveries of things, things that we wouldn't have realized are possible um, if we had just been trying to move directly towards some objective. And the funny thing is, often we might fail if we tried to move towards a specific, specific objective because it might be really complicated and hard. But if we were doing novelty search, we actually might end up solving some problems. Maybe they're problems we didn't expect to solve, but that we would not have been able to solve if we were trying to solve them. Yeah, it's one of those things that when you start to break it apart, at first you're like, well, then how can you use this to get anything done? Because mm. if I don't have an objective and I don't know what the other side of the river looks like, then yeah. what does that even mean for how I should move forward? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that, that's a common question about this. Um, and so the first thing the, to answer that question I want to do is just clarify that we're talking about um, really ambitious, really blue sky types of achievement here. Like how am I going to do something that has never been done before? So like when we're talking, if we were talking about more modest things, um, like I need to um, get breakfast this morning, like then this doesn't make any sense at all. Um, or even less modest than that, but something like I, we're gonna upgrade this software to the next version. Like maybe for that, like that should be an objective and we'll just do it because we basically know what the steps are. Um, but if we're talking about things that no one has ever done before, then the problem is that we have no idea what the stepping stones are on the road to actually getting that thing done. And so, 
it makes sense if you think about it, even though at first it sounds very counterintuitive, but it makes sense that because I don't know what the steps are that I need to go through to get to this very unusual endpoint, um, then maybe what I should be doing is finding stepping stones, like things that might actually be useful for getting somewhere new, rather than actually trying to get to this point, because I actually have no idea, I have no roadmap towards how to get there. So when you think about those big blue sky ideas, like I, the some of the ones that were interesting from the book are like, how do you make a robot walk or how do you teach a robot to figure its way out of a maze? But mm -hmm. then how does that actually apply? Right. So uh, those are examples where we actually ran this computer program or algorithm to try to solve those problems um, using this principle. So the program was actually not trying to make the robot walk. Instead, what it was doing was it was saying, okay, uh, here's a robot, and I'm going to try to control it to do something it hasn't done before. And what was interesting was that even though the concept of walking is nowhere in that formulation, eventually it just stumbles onto the idea of walking anyway, because if it keeps on trying to do new things, eventually to continue to do new things, you have to actually start walking. And that's just to, to make a, 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 a general statement about a more, uh, a more general kind of principle, which isn't just about algorithms, which is that like many things are like this um, in life in general, and also in the history of discovery, like human discovery or human invention. So like one, so if getting away from like computer programs and teaching robots to do things like something, it's like a concrete example from history would be sort of like the invention of the computer. Like if you wanted to create a computer and it was the year like 1800 or something like that, like that would be, um, you have no idea what to do first. What should we do if we want to build a computer? Well, what's funny is that people were during that century actually playing with vacuum tubes and they were getting more and more sophisticated with those vacuum tubes. And, but they weren't doing it because they were trying to make a computer. They were interested in these vacuum tubes for totally independent reasons. And yet eventually it turned out that you needed vacuum tubes to build the first computer. So the thing that was needed to make the computer was built by people who were not trying to build computers. And this principle just, occurs over and over and over again in the history of invention and discovery. And in fact, what's interesting, even more crazy about this, if you really think about it, if we had gone back and found the vacuum tube scientists who were like looking at these vacuum tubes and exploring them, and we had said to them, you know, like, you're kind of wasting your intelligence here. Like, maybe what you should be doing is trying to build a computer. Like, why are you playing with these electrical experiments when we could be building this amazing thing that would like totally revolutionize the world? And if they had actually taken that up, we wouldn't have vacuum tubes, but then we wouldn't have computers either. So it was like, it was important for them not to be trying to build computers in order for us to eventually build computers, which is just a more um, real world kind of illustration of this principle. So I, when I read through your papers, you start talking about how this compares with evolution or co-evolution and these different concepts. And it's an interesting point because evolution when you when you backwards engineer it when you look at like hey where'd it go you say oh it looks like it was intending that the that you were going to get these biped you know um apes and then they would they would turn into humans but that's not yeah. actually the intention wasn't there it was like each evolution gave it some level of competitive advantage and then that competitive advantage then was allowed to uh flourish 
is that the same thing or how do you how do you make that bridge yeah there's there's a really strong connection to evolution um with this novelty search kind of thinking um which is this the realization really is that these these kinds of achievements that are like really blue sky kinds of achievements like a computer or something like that um, they generally happen because of long chains of innovation that had nothing to do with that final discovery. So like the vacuum tubes, like they weren't, people weren't seeking computers when they were seeking vacuum tubes. And actually we see this uh, principle in evolution, maybe most starkly, that the stepping stone organisms that led to some, some, some of the most amazing discoveries, like say the human brain or human intelligence, there was no way that you could predict that this would lead to that. And in fact, the reason that this appeared had nothing to do with that final thing. So like to give a more specific example from evolution, there's, um, there's an ancestor of ours, which is very, very, very far back, but it's a flatworm. <clears throat> and in fact, I believe that the flatworm is the first time that we see bilateral symmetry, um, <clears throat> like in a lineage in, in, in the tree of life. And so this is interesting because it, it appears like in hindsight that like you needed to get bilateral symmetry somehow to get to humans. So like you needed bilateral symmetry to get Shakespeare. But like, if you were looking forward, that would be preposterous. You wouldn't say, well, we need to get bilateral symmetry. Like of all the things, maybe we should be administering IQ tests or something, but not going for geometric symmetry. Like that doesn't make any sense. But the thing is, if we had thought that way and said, oh, well, well like maybe we were like a master breeder, like back in the, in, the, in the days of flatworms, we would just like kill off the flatworms. We'd be like, this has absolutely nothing to do with what we're interested in here. Um, and yet, so the reason though that the flatworms were preserved is because it didn't care about human intelligence at that time. It wasn't trying to do that. And in fact, that's kind of the explanation for why all of the amazing things in nature exist, because none of them were the goal which is a really interesting thing to think about because we do tend to think about processes of discovery as being goal oriented. But if you think about the greatest process discovery at all, which is probably the evolution of all of living nature, like this one run of something that produced everything that exists that's alive, um, that was not trying to produce any single thing that ever actually came into existence. And that's actually the explanation for why they exist. Because if we were trying to produce any specific thing, then all the things that led to that thing we would have eliminated because there's no way we could predict that they actually lead to that thing. So it's very important basically keep an open mind. Uh, you know, I've, I've been wanting to ask you this question about, uh, have you read or heard of this book called um, The Three Body Problem? I did. I read that. Someone told me I should read that. Yeah. It seems yeah. like it's a book that's like, perfect for you. But then as I'm thinking about it, there's a key function in the book that is actually the opposite of what you think, because without giving away any of the details, it's essentially an alien race that is facing the way that these three stars are completely unpredictable yeah. as to when they will rise on this on this planet right. at the same time. And if you have one star, it's a stable period. If you have two, it burns up everything. If you have three, it's complete chaos. And they keep running a simulation saying, what could we do to get past this? And, uh, but they're trying like, uh, in, I think this is your phrase, like a fitness landscape where they're, where they just keep going for like, what would be the one choice we could make that would be different? And they have to just keep running it again and again and again, because mm -hmm. they can't figure out how to beat the three body problem. Yeah, that's interesting um, that it, there is a connection there. Yeah. And other people have pointed that out to me. Yeah. Which is why, yeah. So 
as if as a researcher so you're in artificial intelligence you were at the university of central florida and now you're at open ai when you start applying this to your own career does this make you have like mental breakdowns then? because it's like you want yeah. you want to have you know human beings we want to have progress we want to know where we're going how do how does how does somebody like you then begin to integrate this into your life well, it's it's true that it, it sounds um, it sounds counterintuitive, but the, the thing about this this kind of idea, this principle, is that it always seems counterintuitive. But then, if you really think about it, it actually makes sense. Um, and so, like the way that I think about it is that instead of like if I was trying to do something like I guess trying to create AI, that would be very objectively driven. That would not be like a novelty search. And then I would basically need to say there's some measurement of progress, like here's what I'm trying to do on the road to this final far off achievement that I'm trying to get to. But, but I can approach that differently because I mean, probably that's not a great way to do things in general, just because it is, it is such an ambitious thing. It's kind of blue sky that we may not know what the stepping stones are. And so Another way of thinking about this is instead of trying to make progress, you can try to open up playgrounds, like new places where tons of low hanging fruit might exist, which then leads us to gaining huge amounts of insight that can lead us to another step. So by playground, I kind of mean stepping stone, but I kind of, I call it a playground because it's like a place where you can play around and try new things. And so I think I try to seek out like new playgrounds, like something that is like involves so much possibility that it would just be really interesting to explore there as opposed to, oh, this is better than something else, which is a more kind of objective view of things. And, um, and so it's really about being keyed in on what's interesting um, at any given time. And that word constantly comes up when talking about this, this novelty search stuff is the word interesting or interestingness. It's like, that's another kind of way, maybe a more better way than saying novelty is saying what's interesting. Like I do things because they're interesting, not because they lead towards something that where I know where they're leading, because often things are interesting and I don't know where they lead and that's why they're interesting. Um, and I'm willing to pursue things that are interesting. Um, and I also believe that that's not a random statement. Like some people are like, well, it's just totally random. You just like it. You know, what, who's to say that this is actually useful? But I think that if you think something is interesting and it's in an area where you know some things, like you're not completely ignorant, then probably, you know, we should take you somewhat seriously. Like you have an instinct. That's one thing humans are good at. We have like a nose for the interesting and we can follow those intuitions and see where they lead. When I, when I read your book, I had not uh, dove deeply at all into philosophy. I mean, I'd taken a few classes in mm. college and I just kind of stumbled around. But in the yeah. last few years, I've done a bunch of reading into Nietzsche and, and uh, Goethe and uh, Carl Jung. And I would say that as I read what they're talking about, mm. um, and as far as being interested or finding your daemon, it all appears to me that they are saying the life well lived is the one where you allow your curiosity, your, your, the thing to capture you and then become inhabited by it in some way. And I don't even think they mean it in some like cosmic religious way. Mm. They're basically saying there is something deep inside of you, that voice that says you should go over there. Even when everybody tells you, Hey, that's a, that's a bad mm. idea. You shouldn't go over there. And there was one day when I was sitting around with my buddies and we were talking about novelty search and it cracked mm. into my mind, just like suddenly 
novelty search is the daemon in some in some way yeah that that is an interesting insight um it does seem compatible with that idea and i i know philosophers have said some some related things i think we have a quote a quotes from a couple of them in our book actually um that that we use like to to just um, represent the, the ideas in novelty sources. They're not, they're not actually completely new. I mean, people have had thoughts like this for a long time, um, that there's this kind of liberating way to free yourself um, and just pursue what you feel deep inside is the right thing to pursue. And there may not be an objective justification, like why are you doing this? Like, why are you going to art school? Like when you could just become a doctor. You know, but but you just feel deep inside like that's just what it's, I'm meant to do. I just feel like I should do this, which I, I mentioned that since I visited an art school and met all these artists and they were telling me about this um, and how the book made them feel better because they couldn't objectively justify like to their parents or their teachers, like, why are they going to art school? Um, and so I I think, you know, the, what's diff, what's new here, it's I think for a long time, you know, maybe millennia, people have had this feeling like that you can, there's a kind of way to liberate yourself where you just follow your passion. But I think what's new here is that what we're saying is there is a principal justification for that. Like, it's not just some kind of fluffy, uh, well, I'm not saying that they're being fluffy, these philosophers are sophisticated, <laughs> but it's not just philosophy. Like, we've got experimental evidence of why this does lead to more interesting discoveries. You know, because of the fact that we don't know where the stepping stones lead, somebody needs to go down those unknown stepping stones and find out where they lead. And it's true, they're not always going to lead somewhere good. I mean, that's that's the price of exploration. But on the other hand, the price of not exploring is that you'll never find all those amazing things that are out there that we don't know the stepping stones to lead to them. And so it is it is the new thing that maybe the new insight here is that, yes, this is a this is a appealing philosophy, but it's also principled to actually follow the philosophy. It's a way it is the way that we make great discoveries. And therefore, you should not just feel good for yourself, but you should feel good that you're justified in actually doing it. Your book was a, a very odd blend of being, you know, computer science-ish, but then also kind of self-help would be a little bit too fluffy <laughs> in and of itself. But did you, who are you intending would read that book when you wrote it? That's a good, yeah, that's a really good insight. Um, the book is like that. Um, and uh, this was a real struggle in writing the book, like that we, we wanted to reach like a really broad audience, but I was also worried about watering down the argument. Like there's a scientific argument in there, which is based on these computer experiments. And that's like very computer science-y. Um, and the thing is like, what I, I realized that the, that the ultimate conclusion is like very self-helpy in a way, um, but that on its own, it's it's just like just like a, one of a million self-help kind of books. I mean, it's just going to be um, like you know, go follow your passion and do what you really want to do. Like, good for you. Here's a pat on the back with this book. But I wanted it to be like a very a serious scientific justification. So the book, in effect, would be like a weapon. 
Like you could really, cause there's a lot of people who won't let you follow this kind of path, like in practice, which is one of the reasons we wrote the book. Like my perception is that society, like our society and our culture is totally about objectives. Like from when you're just a little kid, like we're driven by metrics and objectives, like measurements and whether you're going on the right path. And then we know where you're supposed to get when you get to the end point. And every step of the way, you have to justify yourself. You're justifying yourself to your boss, to your teachers, to the people who provide you funding, whoever it is, it's all objectively driven. And so I think that that is to me is the status quo. And the book is supposed to be a, a weapon to argue against the status quo. And so for people who feel like things need to change in their organization, in their school, um, in their discipline, like if you think things need to change, or even in your family, like, it wouldn't, I don't think it would be effective just to have a self-help book that makes you feel better about yourself. I think you want something which is really, really grounded in serious scientific evidence and arguments. And then you can use it and you can say, look, you should look at this book. This has a very serious uh, set of evidence that justifies the choices that I'm saying we should really make, why we should change as an institution. Um, and then uh, when going through that reasoning, I realized that it comes out to this bizarre amalgam of things. It's like this self-help slash like science book slash computer science. And uh, I and pissed Joel every, must have pissed everybody off, right? There's no, there's no I publisher mean, that was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we really struggled. I mean, we, we had an agent for a while who was like kind of works in the, like the popular publishing, like, like um, regular publishing industry. And, you know, he was, he was suggesting things to water things down that would make it more appealing to like mainstream publishers but then I was like, I don't, I felt like that's like selling out in a way. I mean, nothing against the agent. I mean, he was a good agent. I mean, he had good, good suggestions if he wanted to do that, but I just couldn't bring myself to, to, to water it down because I just wanted it to be like the definitive argument. So it, it turned out to be a not very well positioned from a, like a marketing perspective. You know, it's like, it, it's not really appealing to anyone in particular, any demographic really. It just is the argument that I wanted to make, that we wanted to make, um, Joel and I. And, and we tried to make it as like palatable as we could, but, but obviously there was some compromise there. Man, to hear you describe it as a weapon, it makes me so happy because that is exactly how I use that. Awesome. Because awesome. I was in a situation, so I was working for Monsanto, which, uh, you know, to the wider world, they think the, the Monsanto is an evil corporation. We want nothing to do with anything that they, they have to say or do or anything. And the company itself is like, we have brought forward technology that has revolutionized things. We, we, have, we have scientific endeavors here that would blow you away. We have even Nobel Prize winning scientists that have discovered things. Why mm. does everybody hate us? So the company was totally embattled when they hired me, which was the only reason they would do something like that. And I got in there and uh, very quickly found out that if I was going to play the game, by the rules that everyone else played the game by, I was certainly going to fail. And when I came across your book, because I was looking for a language to describe why the strategies that they were using and that their PR company was telling them they should use, um, but just doing them harder or doing them with more money or doing them faster was mm -hmm. not going to work. And once I had that, and I had this concept of, you can hit a local optima where it doesn't matter that if you keep going, unless you're willing to go down and, and search for something that is not mm. as efficient or as effective, then we're not going to be able to make anything happen. And I used your book to describe why we should do a Reddit AMA. And like, at mm. first the whole corporation was like, 
no, absolutely not. <laughs> Fortune 500 companies don't do this. And a long story short, like I got one uh, put together and we did a science read at mm. AMA. And from that, it was it was run at about a month apart from when our Super Bowl ad ran. And yeah. it turns out that the Reddit AMA captured more people's attention for longer than a Super Bowl ad that they had mm. run. And so it was like demonstrable, bang, like, okay, yeah. now we can do something that's totally different. And when they asked me, why do you want to do this? Or what's going to be the outcome? I'm like, I have no idea. I think we'll find somebody on Reddit that will think what we're doing is interesting. And all of these other things started cascading mm. from that. And so we were able to reverse the polarity where they where at first they were like, what we should do is pay to go get on stages. Let's sponsor conferences and then we'll get five minutes to say our piece. Mm. And instead we, we got into the position where, hey, if the world thinks that you are North Korea, then you don't have to pay to get on stages. You just have to say, I'm willing to come talk and I'll answer any questions you have. And they're like, oh, here you go. We've got a chair right here. We've got lots of questions for you. And so for me, when I had the the thoughts from your book, it, it gave me a language to be able to describe to a scientific business community why we should try these things. And for a long time, until I eventually went over the edge, I, I was able to do things that, that they never would have let me do had I not had the language of that book. Wow, that's a great story. I mean, that's, that's gratifying to hear that. Um, that's what the book is for, yeah. It's, it's, it's supposed to get, empower people to do that kind of thing. So there's a bunch of like more abstract things that I want to talk about. And I'm glad that we've been able to kind of uh, talk about your book and kind of this concept of novelty search. But before we go too far, like, who are you, Ken Stanley? Like, uh, we, we, I never let you introduce yourself hmm. or what kind of work you do. I just jumped right uh, in. Yeah, so I, I mean, my main work is in artificial intelligence. And um, I, um, I've been interested in AI since I was a little kid, like around eight years old. Um, and I was interested in, um, I was interested in, I wanted, when I was eight, I wanted the computer basically to have a conversation with me at that time. Um, and I wanted to kind of program a chatbot is really what I wanted to do. I, I could program a chatbot, like I used basic because that was a computer language on my Commodore 64 computer. Um, but it was, the problem was it was boring, like, because I knew what it was going to say. So I was like, that was really kind of disappointing. You know, I'd say, hey, what's your name? I'd say, Ken. I'd say, hi, Ken. At first, it's like, wow, I got it. To, actually, it's responding to me and saying hi. But then after a while, it's pretty boring because it always says that. Um, and so I think, like, I just, even back then, I realized I wanted to be surprised. Like, I wanted to be surprised. Um, and like when, as I moved forward in artificial intelligence research, I, I think I always was like leaning towards, I wanted to build a system that would do something I didn't expect, which is so related, you know, to like novelty search and open-endedness and the kinds of things discussed in the book, I guess that it's not a coincidence. I mean, even though I, I wouldn't have been able to say anything like this book back then, or, or even like, you know, when I was in my twenties. Um, but like I, I was just moved, I guess there's something about my personality that is very open-ended leaning um, and doesn't like being told that I have an objective. I guess I, I'm a little rebellious, I think. Um, I think I should be able to do things just because they're interesting. I, I get really annoyed when people want like more justification than that. Um, and so somehow this is, this is somehow suiting my personality, um, but it's kind of surprising because I never was trying to. 
Um, it's just like a coincidence that like we, we, we eventually discovered some some kinds of technologies that, that seem to justify my way of thinking anyway. Um, maybe it's not actually a coincidence. When was the first time you that a computer did something that surprised you and you had to go and say like, whoa, how did you do that? Um, that's a good question. It's probably... Um, like experiments with what you might call artificial evolution or they call it evolutionary algorithms. Um, I started getting interested in those in grad school um, and it was at the University of Texas at Austin. And then um, those you're basically doing like breeding on like artificial brains that are controlling things you know, like characters in, in some, uh, like you could think of it like a video game. And, and then quickly things start happening that you don't necessarily expect, which is probably why I was so drawn to them. Like, cause they, they tend to produce surprising behaviors that you wouldn't expect. A lot of the time they're like loophole exploitation. Like you'll find out that there was something in the game that was like a way to cheat and you didn't even realize it. And then it'll just quickly lock in on that and find that. And that's, that's not really what you wanted, but I find it kind of satisfying cause it's so surprising. It's like, wow, this thing is thinking. It's like, it came up with something I never would have thought of. Um, so yeah, there, and there's actually recently, I think Joel led a paper that has like dozens of authors, like my co-author Joel Lehman from, from the book, but it was a paper about like the surprising create creativity of digital evolution. I think it was called something like that. Um, but it has like a huge, like laundry list of surprising things that happened in all these different experiments that different scientists did. So it just, it's a kind of technology that tends to produce a lot of surprises. Just like evolution on Earth is very full of surprises. Yeah, and like evolution on Earth, when you start breaking it open, when I read uh, Matt Ridley's book, The Red Queen, where you start figuring out like what were the competitive strategies that allowed something to, to and, they, and it's, it's funny to even call them strategies, right? Because strategies implies that they knew what they were doing in some way, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's almost like water seeping into the cracks that were there that that nobody yeah. even realized the the cracks were there that the water could get in that deeply yeah, yeah but like when you start looking at the the different way the branches that have come off in that kind of fractal radiation uh concept there's it's 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 an it's an endless uh pit you could just fall down inside of those different yeah. evolutionary strategies forever yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like the water seeping down um, metaphor. That That's similar to, I mean, I sometimes think of it as like spilled milk. So it's actually a similar metaphor. It's like, you know, if you spill milk on a table, it will just go everywhere it can go eventually, unless there's a barrier, but otherwise it'll go around the barriers. Um, and so that's kind of more what I think. It's like basically what evolution is doing is just showing everything that every possible way there is to make a life um, or to make a living. And um, all the things that could be eventually will be if you wait long enough for the milk to spill. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's revealing, it's like a, a revelation of like the space, the search space of what's possible gradually over eons. Like it's just going to reveal what's possible. And that's, that's an open-ended process. Well, and weeds are a fascinating and insects as well when you're talking about crops, because as soon as you come up with a solution to be able to stop them, then then they find some way out of it. So, mm. you know, I, I oftentimes when I would go mm. out and talk about uh, pesticides and you would say, well, OK, if you don't use pesticides, let's say you just send human beings out there and those human beings pick the bugs off of the plants eventually. And it doesn't take very many generations, maybe mm. two years 
you start finding that the insects will begin to look more and more like the plants that they're at because mm. those are the ones that the human beings didn't grab. So they had some slight variation of green that yeah. made it so it looked like a leaf so you couldn't spot it. And, mm. and weeds do that exact same thing. As soon as you find something that can spot them, then they're going to find a way to wrap around that in yeah, some yeah. interesting, unique way. Yeah, that's the milk spilling around the, the barriers there. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So when people hear this concept of artificial intelligence, I think most of them think of it as like either weird sci-fi or a, a legitimate threat to human beings. Like they're going mm -hmm. to outthink us. And so it's a little bit like, you know, letting loose a nuclear bomb or something into society. How do you think about the, the beyond your curiosity, are you worried about letting something loose that will eventually transcend us? Um, yeah, I think we, we, we should be worried about it. Um, it's, um, it's, it can have really good effects. It can have very negative effects. It's, it's, a, it's really, the bottom line of it is it's just like completely impossible to predict. Like we have no real clue what it's going to do to us. And um, so, but, but it, the thing is, it's probably going to happen. Like that's unfortunately the case. Like, um, I don't know if like what level of artificial intelligence will happen, but there will be progress certainly. And it may be very, very big progress. If there can be, there probably will be eventually. And so, um, the question is, you know, how, what should we do about it now? Like, it, like, I don't think the answer is to give up because the problem is that not everyone will give up. Like some people will always be pursuing it no matter what. So if the only people who give up are people who are like worried, like oh, maybe something bad will happen, then the only people working on it are people who don't care if something bad happens. Um, and that seems like a really bad idea. So I do, I do like I've, when I thought about it for myself, like, you know, should I not be involved in this? Cause something bad might happen. But then I'm like, but but if if the people who are worried about something bad happening all just decide not to be involved, then who does that leave? It's just people who don't care about that. So I do think um, that that we should pursue the the potential good outcomes um, as as participants in the process of, of of making advances in AI, and hope that we can then um, help to sway like the overall community of people working in this to, to move in the directions that are safer um, and more beneficial to humanity, because there, there probably are a lot of benefits that we can have. Um, and, and, but there's going to always be some uncertainty. When you're sitting around with your friends and you're having a highly open conversation, uh, what are the dangers that you guys have elucidated so far? Well, I guess that the, um, the more near-term dangers probably are more economic. I mean, it has to do with things like jobs um, and job replacement or loss of loss of jobs. Um, and then in the long term, you have like like radical re uh, designs of the entire society. I mean, that could happen. Um, like if AI can do anything that a human can do, um, and then you have like Terminator-like scenarios and stuff, which I think are maybe not um, as they seem a little bit uh, too far off, I think, to be to be immediately worrying. Like that seems like the most popular focus of like science fiction is like Terminator style stuff. Um, but I don't know that it's that likely. Um, 
uh, of, of a real worry, but it, it is something at least you want to be aware that like if you don't want AIs to try to do something to hurt us. Um, so yeah, there's a whole spectrum of bad things that, that are worth considering. Um, and I think like that there's, I mean, the best thing to do is to really seriously try to engage with these bad outcomes um, at the same time as doing scientific research to advance the technology. We have to do everything. Actually, OpenAI does try to do these. This, I mean, they really try to think about these things too. Um, the place, the new place that I'm at right now. Um, so what is OpenAI? Uh, OpenAI is, is a company that is um, researching artificial intelligence and um, is probably it's probably fair to say it's one of the leaders um, in that. Um, and so their interest is to actually have the benefits of this technology go back to humanity. Um, so that's what they're, at least that's what they're trying to do. So I think one of the weird uh, challenges about AI and the dangers of it is that it could be like, um, you know, the metaphor when they say the cells uh, double every you know minute. And when does the glass, when is the glass uh, half full, you know, and then the next time it doubles, now it's all the way full. So it's like, you don't really see it coming, but because it's exponential growth, mm -hmm. it's like happens in an instant. And that's the part mm -hmm. that to me is is uh, a little bit freaky about AI. It's almost like you could get to a point where you don't realize you've gone to the point of no return. And now it's now it's uh, increasing its ability so quickly that we can't even fathom it. Yeah, that is that is a, a kind of um, puzzling aspect of it is this like potential to just kind of jump out at us when we may not think it's as close as it is. Um, and that means we have to be, we have to be ready to anticipate that. I and mean, we have to try to estimate how far that is, um, by understanding how these kind of exponential processes work and then be out ahead of it, hopefully, um, and before that actually happens. I mean, obviously part of it happening is us. Like we are actually the ones making things so we can try to slow ourselves down, but you can only do that so much because again, there's, there's always somebody else who's willing to jump in and actually do the thing just because you stop doing it doesn't mean someone else is stopping. So it is a bit of a race, I think, um, to get out ahead of this, but we don't know when it's really going to happen. Obviously. I mean, it's still, it's still, it's still speculation. And so when you think about the positive sides of AI, what comes to mind is, as the major benefits? Well, um, I think, one thing is it can um, replace a lot of the most dangerous types of pro jobs that uh, human beings have to undertake. Um, and so maybe all these places where humans risk their lives, um, in, in theory, machines could be doing it instead. And that's nice. Um, it could be, it could help with um, the ensuring that um, certain kinds of resources are always plentiful for us. Um, if there are things that um, where different parts of the world are under-resourced in different ways, maybe in terms of food, you're more of an expert than me, but um, AI can come in there and actually provide the labor um, and the logistics um, to actually make things available that need to be available. Um, and so also I think in creative endeavors um, that we can imagine, and this maybe is less essential or important to 
to our well-being, but it is still important. I mean, creativity is a big part of like who we are. Like if you think of art and music and stuff like that. Um, and it can, I think what it can do is it can allow us or regular people to be more of a part of the production process as opposed to just consumption. Because most of us just consume this kind of stuff. Um, but we can unlock, I think, a lot of our kind of implicit um, preferences about like what appeals to us and what doesn't appeal to us with AI um, and make many, many people uh, into artists that aren't right now, into really good artists. Um, and that can be fun um, and change like the whole landscape of like creativity. Wow, that is super interesting. I, I did not expect that. So wh what do you mean? Like, I mean, it's not going to make people piano players. What, what, what will it do instead? Well, I think it, it might. Well, it, I guess what I think is there's two things. Like first is you there is there's a difference between implicit and explicit knowledge. Like explicit is like the ability to actually make something that you want to make. Like you want to make a really nice picture. Like you know explicitly how to do it. And, and most people lack that. We don't know how to do that, except for like really good artists. But implicit knowledge, like we all have, like almost anybody can look at a picture and say whether it's good. Um, and so that means that there's a lot more, you have a lot more ability with respect to art than you actually can explicitly express. Because you can't really explain like it why why is this a really good picture? I mean, if you could, then maybe you would just draw it ultimately. Um, but but you can actually but you can judge it. And so I think AI has the potential to flip this implicit to explicit, like because there is that knowledge inside you. And so if we could get it out of you, elicit it in a way that then it could be converted into actual explicit stuff like art, um, then we could actually create the things that you think are good. Uh, that really are about you. They're actually a form of self-expression. Um, the other weird thing is just that you might have some explicit abilities, but you don't have the right um, context to actually express them. So like you might be able to hum a nice tune, you know, um, but, but like you don't know what to do with that. Like may, maybe you could even come up with a new tune. I think, I think some, I don't know how many people could do that, but I can do that. I can, I could just hum a completely new tune, and, but I'm not a musician. Um, but someday, um, just hum it into the AI and it will create the piano and it will, it'll give you the whole band. We'll create a whole symphony around it and it'll fix all the rhythm and everything that's imperfect about what you did. And it'll be your creation. Um, now if everybody could do that, I mean, could you imagine like the, the, the gigantic, like, um, typhoon of just new art and music that would be coming out constantly, like everybody's implicit abilities would be just like amplified. Um, it would totally change the landscape of like all everything. Well, this reminds me of a, a study that was done one time about uh, about art. So they brought a group of subjects into the room and they showed them uh, two pieces of art. And one was abstract and clearly somebody had spent a lot of time on it and it yeah. was you know interesting. And the other one was like one of those kind of hang in there kitty kind of obvious uh, pieces. And they said, okay, they, they broke them into two groups. And the, to the first group, they said, um, you can have either painting, but you have to explain why you chose the painting. And it turns out that a huge percentage, mm -hmm. uh, something like 80% of the people that had to explain why they were going to choose one painting over the other, chose the hang in their kitty. But if, uh, if you were in the group where you didn't have to explain, you just got to pick yeah. up your painting and leave, people chose the abstract one. 
Now, that wasn't all that interesting until you fast forward about six months and then they come back and they say, hey, uh, what did you do with that painting? And the people that chose the hang in their kitty because they had to explain what which art they were choosing, almost all of them had either put it in a closet or down in their basement or given it mm. to a friend. Whereas the people that had chosen the abstract one, almost all of them had hung it up somewhere. Mm. And mm. there's something like really important about allowing people to uh, feel something or absorb it without being able to describe it that that altered what their what their preferences were and then ultimately how much they they wanted to be around that piece of art yeah that that is very interesting um that's you know it shows something about um i guess it's about stepping stones like somehow that that abstract thing leads to like more interesting follow-up thoughts than than just a simple thing um and i guess that resonates with people as long as it's framed the right way like where they they realize that they are allowed to do that um and so yeah i think i think ai can help to um like kind of explore the, those aspects of people so AI is not just about ai I mean, it's also about us i mean it's its interaction with us can help us to learn about ourselves and bring out more of our abilities and um that will be, I think eventually that will be a big thing. That will be amazing, I would imagine. Um, yeah. Something, I, I, a game that I play with my friends is uh, I'll ask them to picture a room that we've both been in or, or a space that we've both been in. And, uh, and I'll say, okay, draw that space for me. And uh, there's an interesting thing that happens, and I've only ever seen two branches break off. There may be more, but I'm interested if I were to ask you, Hey, pick out a room. Describe for me how you would draw that room. How would you think about drawing it? Um, if if we would um, pick, it, sorry, actually part of that cut out. Sorry about that. So if if you and I were both to know some space, some some room or some building, and I said to you, Ken, I want you to draw for me that space so that I can see it too. How would you go about drawing that space? Um. If we both knew, if if both of us knew a space, um, yeah, I guess. How would I draw the space? So I guess I would. Um, um, I would try to draw the landmarks that um, are most likely to help you remember w which room I'm talking about or thinking. Would it about. look more like a blueprint, or would it look more like a painting? Um, like, would you be in the subjective experience or would you be mm. over top of it looking down? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I guess I would, um, uh, maybe I'd go for the subjective um, for me. Uh, so, because I don't know if you would recognize right away the overhead view, because that's not the way we experience things. So I would, I think I'd go with subjective. That's interesting. And I'm the same way. So it, it's interesting because I think there's really only two branches. I've only ever heard people describe it. So a lot of my friends who are much more on the technical space, my wife is an aerospace engineer, my buddies are data scientists, right? They draw it from that blueprint perspective and um, they get the spatial things correct. You know, they, they, they know about how large the room is and how large the walls are relative to each other. And me, I can't do that. And if somebody draws one from above for me to look at a blueprint, 
I cannot tell you what that room will look like. Mm. I could build it because I, I, mm. I worked with blueprints and I learned how to do building, but it will be a surprise to me how that building will look. Mm. But if I were to draw it, I have to actually walk into the room in my mind and I have to look around and then mm. I see things. And so the walls are not the correct uh, dimensions. The space is not correct, but the things in the room are super high fidelity. In fact, right, if, if right. we had shared it, I'd be able to tell you what it smelled like or mm. what it sounded like in that room. And you're one of the few people, I, I really expected you to say the blueprint view. Huh. And so what does it tell you then? Uh that what does it mean about me or somebody to take the, the subjective view? Well, I think that it has something to do with the way people record memories, right? And, mm. and I think it also says something about, and not always, but the, the way that you experience things like books or the mm. way that you experience maybe other pieces of art or, or mm. any, any sort of experience, right? Like, do you mm. view it from the zoomed out lens or is mm. it your own personal experience? And I, I, don't, right, I don't know that that's necessarily true, but it's something that I find infinitely interesting who chooses which, which path. Yeah, I mean, it, it probably does tell you something about people's view of the world or how they think about things. Yeah, maybe, maybe it is partly a subjective versus objective type of distinction like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I don't describe things objectively, ultimately. I just think about the experience itself. Um, Man, that is shocking to me. to me. I really, really would have expected you to be um, more of the objective. And it's probably <laughs> some bias that I have towards uh, thinking that people in the computer science are, yeah. you know, typically more on the highly objective, you know, yeah. tone, tune out as many of the, the, yeah. the, as much as the noise as you can, which often feels like the subjective experience. Well, they may be, I mean, maybe most people are in computer science, but that's actually, that's an interesting point because, you know, the, the book, our book, which is called uh, why greatness cannot be planned, but the subtitle is the myth of the objective. And so it's a big argument, not just against like planning, but against objectives. And now there might be, a, it, so at first it might seem like this is a different kind of objective, like, okay, there's an objective in the sense I'm trying to achieve something, so that's my objective, versus an objective view of reality. Um, but I actually think those two things are very, uh, very similar to each other, very connected to each other. So like people who really like objectives, like pursuing an objective, also like to think objectively. Because like objective thinking is very like metric driven. It's like you're trying to accurately reproduce something in a way that's measurable. So you can like prove it to somebody. Whereas like a subjective view of reality is, is much less metric driven. It's just basically, well, that's the way it is to me. It's more of like an artistic view of reality in a way. Um, like it just, I'm trying to give you a sense of what it was like to, from my experience. And, and so when I think of something's interesting, it's completely subjective. Like I don't have to prove to you it's interesting because I'm just saying it's interesting to me. I know we don't all share the same interests and that's my subjective viewpoint. Um, and I think that um, this kind of um, subjectivity, it, this is interesting when you talk about computer scientists and you say, are they, they might tend to be objective because sometimes I've thought, like there's a missing view of computer science or at least artificial intelligence, which doesn't get talked about that much because we think of it as a science, which is to think of it more as an art. Actually, I wrote a paper on this too at one point, but when I was thinking about this, this issue that like, am I, when I, if I create an algorithm, like a novelty search, am I, am I actually behaving as a scientist 
or is this more of a work of art? Um, and it's not clear to me why we assume this is science. Like we all, we're very, um, we feel very proud of being scientists. So nobody really would want to say I'm not a scientist. Like that would not be a stamp of pride. Um, but the thing is like, if, if you really think about it, um, creating an artifice, like an artifact, I mean, it's called artificial intelligence. You're talking about artifice. Like creating an artifice is what art does, right? I mean, if you paint a picture of an apple, nobody thinks it's a real apple. There's no, there's no like debate or like, we don't try to measure and check to see, is that actually an apple? Like, does it actually work like an apple? It's just a picture of an apple. It's really about your subjective experience of apples is what you're doing. So if I create an algorithm, which is somehow supposed to resonate with some kind of process that you see in nature, um, why, should, why should that necessarily be objectively validated? Like that just is an impression of something that I experience in nature. Um, and so, so I think art, art, algorithms can be, can be um, subjective experiences that are basically, it's, there's only a small group of people that can actually appreciate it because they have to understand the algorithm. Um, but it could be, it could just be like a work of art that you're just trying to express a feeling about something, like a process in nature. I mean, man, that really hits home on so many levels for me, not least of which is uh, I have no point to a conversation, right? And I think like uh, one of the things that my friends and even my wife struggle with is they think like if I'm going to start this conversation, small talk is painful because there is no point to it. I don't, I'm not yeah. trying to get something out of it. In fact, I'm trying to get past that point in order that I can begin the process of figuring out why it is that we're communicating. Whereas for me, uh, I don't even think of it as small talk. For me, it's like we've just hit a new search space. Mm -hmm. And the, the beginning part of it is for me to, to discover something that you're going to say that I didn't anticipate. And as soon as I hear you say something I didn't expect, bam, that's where I want to go. That's, the, that's yeah. the playground, so to speak. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, that is kind of a novelty search. And then you're just trying to find something interesting, something new, um, move the conversation to a new region, and that's true that someone who's very objectively inclined would maybe be hesitant or unsure where you're going or why are we going in this direction or what are we trying to do? I mean, objective people who are thinking objectively um, are worried about that. Like, where are things going? They're always worried about that. They're trying to get to an objective point. Um, and I'm not trying to caricature people because I think the same person can be objective in one situation and less so in another. So it's not like people are just stereotypes where they're always thinking objectively. Um, but it's often the case that people are thinking that way. And, and then, you know, that we miss this opportunity just to explore. And, and you know, conversation is one, re one way we can explore. So tell me about, uh, you know, what, what do you do when you're not working, right? Like what, what is your search space for things that are fun or um, you know, <laughs> your, the subjective experiences that you enjoy the most? Yeah. Um, I guess I, well, I mean, in reality right now, it's mostly just taking care of kids. Um, so, and that is a form of exploration. So I definitely actually enjoying it. Um, How but, old are your kids? Um, one and six. Okay. Wow. So you have a very, those are totally different um, frames of life. <laughs> yeah, they are very different. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's funny to see them interacting with each other. Um, Cause yeah, the one, the one year old really wants to be doing what the six year old is doing, but he doesn't understand at all why or what's going, really going on. Um, 
so yeah, there's, well, so kids are a huge place to, to learn and explore and, and, and you don't have to have an objective. That's for sure. Like to really get a lot out of interacting with kids. Um, but I like, um, yeah, I like things that make me feel a certain way. So like, I, for some reason I like things that are tall. I like tall buildings and like tall mountains and stuff like that. And I don't know why and I have no objective. So I just, if I can look at them and I feel good. Um, so I like try to get near things like that and look at them. Have you ever been to Tulsa, Oklahoma? No, I haven't been there. No. So I like, uh, I love tall buildings as well. And, you know, you have the experience of being in Manhattan where you're surrounded, not just by the tall buildings, but all the noise and all of the, the chaos that's around it. But when you go to Tulsa, it's like, uh, you've just stumbled into an Ayn Rand novel and there's very few cars and you know that these big, beautiful, ornate buildings are actually empty, hmm. but you stand in their shadows all of the time because like in every yeah. direction there, are the, and it was built during the era of oil. And so there's these grandiose buildings and there'd be no reason to tear them down, although there's no reason for them to be full. But it's one of those places that when I go to it, I've been there twice. I, I mean, like I could just go wander around in that space because of the way that it makes me feel it's it's a hmm. truly profound experience <laughs> it does i've never heard that scripture tells us so i'll have to uh yeah hopefully someday when, when travel is actually something people do i can actually try that well and it's and, and like it's actually a really weird juxtaposition because it's also where all these train lines come in so you can go into hmm. these spaces where they're totally wide open hmm. and then you walk another 500 yards maybe half a mile and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of all these buildings so it, it is a, it is an experience yeah that sounds cool i have to check out tulsa <laughs> <laughs> and so ken you're uh you're you're kind of on the edge of of uh of artificial intelligence and and what's going to happen in the future does it feel like the edge to you when you're going to work every day? Does it feel like, Hey, I'm, I'm surfing on this edge of chaos. Um, yeah, I think that I do. There's some feeling of, um, the cutting edge or like where change is happening or like right at the right, right at the border where we don't know what's on the other side. I mean, that's, that's there a lot. Um, and, yeah, that's fun. I guess that that is exploration. I mean, you want to be near that border to find something new. I think that that's what uh, children has been for me. So I actually just had mm. a daughter just a little over two months ago. And for me, it's uh, I, I came to the realization that um, if you're if you're expecting that you can be paying attention to something else, and then when the interesting thing happens, you can turn your attention to it. So like scrolling through Twitter, for example, and then be like, hey, when you smile, then I'll pay attention to you. You miss actually all of the thing about it that's interesting, right? You're watching this little baby flap their arms <laughs> as they're trying to connect. I'm excited, but how do I then move my hands and arms around in that thing? And it's been... um. I, I was not expecting parenthood to be this edge of chaos and it 100% is for me. And I realized that the only way it feels like surfing is if I put everything else down and pay attention to this thing. And uh, yeah, that's been a fun experience for me. Yeah. And, and congratulations. Um, that's, and that's true that the parenting is 
or, or kids. I mean, they're just basically something is profound about it. So it's true that like it's very short and you could miss it if you're paging through Twitter or something like that. Um, although sometimes it's hard to pay attention because like, you know, honestly, you can, it can sometimes be boring too. Um, but then you'll miss these moments that are really, really interesting um, and special too. Um, and um, yeah, I was, I was always really, especially with my, my first kid, I was like super fascinated. Like it just, what a baby is because it's just so strange and hard to relate to what it, what the baby is experiencing. Like, it's just, um, for it, everything is totally new and it's almost like not human in a way. Like it doesn't share any of the shared experience of, of humanity. Um, and, and it doesn't know anything or, or in case, case he doesn't know anything. So like what, yeah, what, that's just really interesting to watch. Like, how does that turn into a human? It's going down some really long path of which I would say is kind of a novelty search. Oh, it, it's a hundred percent a novelty search is right. You know, like how do I get the, the adults to do the thing that I want when I don't even have language to process what it is <laughs> that I want. The only thing you yeah. really have, you know, the observation that I have about like uh, when you're going to give it a bath, right? Like it gets a little bit cold and then freaks out because it's tolerances are so low that the that the millions of years of evolution have told it if you get outside of these tolerances freak out because you know yeah. to get any you, you can't you can't recover <laughs> on your own so you're required yeah. to force other people to pay attention to it yeah 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 and then there's like strange things like where does how does it well i mean maybe at two months they wouldn't have but how do they have a sense of humor when they're like six months old or something like like they think peekaboo is funny but like, why, how did they get this idea that that's funny? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Where does that follow from? It's like sense of humor is just so innate or something. It's like, it's, you're like born with a sense of humor, it seems like. Um, yeah. And then, we, and that's an interesting thing, like, because I always, I mean, I'd been around little kids, but never when it was mine. So I had to pay attention to it so closely. But the, the, um, the fact that smiling isn't there from day one, right? Like it comes yeah. a month and a half in and then it's only intermittent and then you're trying to, but like, yeah. there's all these things that you think of as like, oh, that's just what it is to be human. And maybe it is, but it wasn't there to begin with. They, there was mm -hmm. some wiring that had to take place and some things that had to connect. And then all of a sudden it's there and it wasn't taught that. So was it always yeah. there? It's like a very difficult concept to wrap your mind around. Yeah, I guess we don't really know. And it's yeah, the, the concept of what's innate is, is really slippery because it's, it's like some combination of what's uh, there from the beginning and then, and then inevitability. Like inevitability doesn't get talked about that much, but like some things, it's not like, it's not like an objective driven process where it's like you, if you start here and I keep on measuring, I make sure that you go there. It's more like, if I, if you start here and then you just keep exploring, like you will inevitably hit this no matter what you do. Um, and that, that tends to be true on the early stuff. Like when you're starting out on a journey, like the later stuff tends not to be inevitable. Like it's not inevitable that you're going to be hosting like a, a podcast. Like that's not inevitable. Um, but it is inevitable that you're going to walk somehow. Um, cause it's way earlier on the journey. It seems like all, like just about everybody hits walking when they're in it. but you could look at it as an objective thing like okay it was supposed to walk so it learned how to walk but i think maybe not i think like the the baby is innocently thinking oh how do i walk 
Like it's, it's gaining stepping stones just by trying things. It doesn't know what it's leading to. It has no idea it's going to eventually be walking. Yeah. And it's different. I think if you're the second child and you can see, I see a behavior that this other child has that I want to get. But the fact that the first one figured out how to walk when they didn't even know that that was a part of their, um, you know, future vocabulary. Or what, the, what, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, I was thinking like the, the things that lead to walking, like, why did it, why did it pick those up? Like it wasn't doing it. Like if it had to wiggle its, its toes or wiggle its feet, um, or sit up or it's not like every time it made an advance like that. It was like, okay, this is what I need to do to figure out how to walk. It was doing them for other reasons, just like the vacuum tube in the computer. It just that's interesting in its own right. I'm going to see if I can do this. Like I have, I'm not thinking about walking right now. Yeah. And then there's this also, like when you add in the layer of parenting, there's this weird thing. And I, you know, I think we used to live in communities much more. So you'd be surrounded by children. You'd have been watching them be raised. You'd, you'd have a sense like, I don't know why we sing this song or, or play the itsy bitsy spider or do the, the, this little piggy went to market, but that those things ended up helping guide the child. And so now living in this world where I'm having to be like, okay, I know we used to do these songs. I think they're important, um, but but then not really knowing and like them being remnants of our culture as a thing that has to be passed on in order to be able to help the child get to those things that were inevitable. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting too. Yeah, there are these like just cultural things we don't even remember. Like why, why is that the way we do things? It's just there. So as a, as a parent, when you think about the inevitability things, but you also think about, you know, by four years old, they have got to be socialized because if they're not socialized, then mm. they're likely not going to be. How do you think about your role in, in interacting with the inevitability? Hmm. Well, I guess it's the, the thing is, well, that's a good point. Yeah. Like, I guess it, some things are more inevitable than others, I guess I would say. Like, like it's true that even walking is not truly inevitable. I mean, if you did something horrible, you, you, know, <laughs> you don't let the kid sit up for its, the first two years of life. Like, maybe it, it, it won't learn to walk. Um, so, like, there has to be some reasonable conditions around, like the expected conditions. Um, like, especially, like, if you don't talk, like, it won't learn any language, obviously. No one ever talks. Um, and so, so yeah, like when it gets to more complex, higher level things like socializing, um, I think, yeah, things get a little less inevitable. Like there's still, uh, some things are still kind of inevitable, but, but uh, you know, it's maybe it's a continuum. It's not like it is inevitable or it isn't. There's just a degree of inevitability. Um, and so like complete social deprivation probably means that some things that normally are inevitable won't happen. Um, and you're, you're going to have real problems. You, you try to give them um, like some of the like reasonable experiences, I guess, that, that, that you think help it to, to climb those stepping stones and discover those things for, for itself. And as you're imagining the world that your children will go into, uh, what do you think you will guide them towards such that they'll, they'll be resilient in a world that may be filled with artificial intelligence <laughs> that can outcompete them uh, oh, yeah. on, on every domain of intelligence? Yeah, well, that's a really hard question because we don't really understand that world at all. Um, we're not, I, I guess, I don't think we're preparing them for that. I mean, I mean, we as in like anybody, I don't, I don't think we're preparing our children for that world because we don't know anything about it. Um, we, um, 
we're preparing children for a world where other people are in control of the world. Um, and, and so that's sort of how we understand the world that they're entering into. Um, like there's no training or there's no experiences to help them get used to dealing with artificial intelligence. Like, I don't know what they're, what to do with them. Um, we should build the artificial intelligence to accommodate us, hopefully, so we don't have to be accommodated to it. Um, but, but it's going to be, it's just, that world is so exotic and different that, that I just don't know what, what to do about it. I have no idea. I don't know what it's like at all. Are you, uh, and, I'll, and then I'll relent on the parenting questions, but it's something that fills my mind. I'm, so I'm very curious about how other people handle it. But how do you think about things like uh, computer screens and, and the amount of time children spend in these spaces where so much of their learning is, is instituted through uh, electronic means? Yeah, I mean, I think right now it's really hard with the pandemic to really be principled in addressing that issue because it's just like it's like required for certain things so um right now i think you just have to compromise like there's going to be some there's going to be some screen time no matter what your particular beliefs are um but i guess in general yeah ideally i think uh, the ideal would be to not be completely saturated in screen time um like i just i guess my intuition is that like being around actual physical stuff is good for you mentally so um so hopefully a, a significant part of your time can be in that but, but i also don't think i wouldn't i'm not like a super purist like i don't think it's like horrible to have some screen time either um, i don't think that's terrible that's my my i kind of think with that things work out i mean i'm not a child psychologist so i could be completely wrong but I kind of think like as long as there's a generally reasonable amount of normal experiences, like things will probably work out okay. Um, so I'm not super worried about it. Um, but I do think that like you want you want for mental health and you you want some amount of like natural experience. Like that's how we evolved. Like we're we're, we're part of the physical world, and and that's probably good for us, is my guess. One of my favorite questions to ask people is, uh, I call it the Peter Thiel paradox, which is, what is one thing that you believe that almost no one agrees with you on? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, let me think about that. Okay, well, I can I can name one thing. I don't know if it's like the ultimate thing, but um, like that, I think that we should eliminate standardized testing as a way of um, helping to improve the school system. I guess oh, well, man. some people say more about that. That's very interesting. Um, well, actually, now I think some people probably do agree with that. So I'm probably not the only person that thinks that. But there's enough. There's a lot of people who disagree with it. Um, at least the way the government certainly disagrees with that. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's related. I mean, it's in the book. It's related to uh, the novelty search principle. But like the education system is um, like a really big ambitious problem. Like the way, like like the way these other problems are that I'm thinking about. That like we can't approach objectively. So it's something where like we want every child to to get to some some threshold level of educatedness and that might be 
way past where most kids are getting today. Like a lot of people are behind where we wish they were. Um, and so the, so this like overarching question of like, how do we get everybody up to that threshold um, is sort of an objective question. Like we're saying, that's our objective. All the kids can do this amount of stuff. Um, and so it's very natural then that the next thing we get is all these standardized tests to measure against the objective. So here's our objective, let's measure it. And then like, if they're not making progress, then we just, there's something wrong with that school or something like that. Let's like eliminate that or do something else. Um, but the, but the problem is just like all super hard problems, all ambitious problems, we don't actually know what the stepping stones are that lead to like all the kids in the country getting above this threshold. We just don't know. I mean, if we did, we would just follow the stepping stones. Obviously we would just do it. And obviously we don't know because we never succeed. And so it's actually naive to think that, um, that somehow an objective driven metric, like a test like this, a standardized test is going to be the solution to this problem because all problems like this, and this actually, we didn't discuss this much, but this is a big point in the book and, and with novelty search is that all very hard problems are deceptive. And deception means that the stepping stones that lead to the solution to the problem don't resemble the problem itself, which is again, like vacuum tubes and computers. Like if you're making progress in vacuum tubes, it doesn't look like you're making progress towards computers. Like you wouldn't think that you're like closer to actually, you know, like, like this, this um, zoom setup that we have right now, because I have a new vacuum tube. Um, but actually you are getting closer. You just don't realize it because it's deceptive. Um, and on the other hand, there's another kind of deception, which is that you can seem like you are making progress, but actually you're just heading towards a brick wall. Um, and that's often the case. It's like you can make a few inches of progress, but actually you need to go miles and all you're really doing is just heading towards a brick wall. Um, and so, of course, like any really hard problem is deceptive. That's why it's hard. It's basically the definition of hard. If it wasn't hard, then it wouldn't be deceptive because we would know how to get there, but we don't know how to get there. That's the whole problem. That's why it's considered a problem. And so if you have some simple objective metric, like a test, like a standardized test, then you're basically ignoring the fact that it's probably deceptive. So it may seem that you're making progress for a while, but you will hit a brick wall. You will hit a dead end inevitably because it's going to be deceptive. And then what? Well, then, like, you have to back up, which no one will want to do ever. So they'll just try to create more tests, test, test, test. Um, but sometimes you have to go down before you go up, you know, and that's, that's just not acceptable to us when we think about education and standardized testing. But really what you need is not going down and going up is really the point. What you really need is diversity. That's the real problem here is that, like, we don't know what works and we don't know where things that work work because it's probably not a, there's no universal solution to every single situation in every school system. And so we need a diversity of approaches. We need a diversity of innovative approaches, like things that we haven't yet thought of. And diversity just does not flourish under conditions that are objective. Like if everybody has to be going up and score on some particular test, then there cannot be diversity um, because some, degree of risk-taking means that some of these test scores are going to go down, but that's not allowed to happen. So you don't get any risk-taking, so you don't get any diversity. And then the other thing that you need in order to make progress on a really deceptive problem is you need to have communication. So like if there's a lot of diversity, and so people are trying different ideas, we need to be exposed to each other's ideas. So I need to find out your idea 
and find out how it worked in the context that you're in and then compare it to my context. And then maybe I'll think of a new idea based on that. That's a stepping stone. So basically I need to be exposed to the potential stepping stones. Um, one blanket standardized test. I mean, the word standardized tells you it's just not diverse. It's the exact opposite. There are no stepping stones in that world. Everybody is lockstep on the exact same road at the exact same time. And so all diversity has been flushed out of the system. All innovation is flushed out of the system. We will never solve the problem. Oh, man, I completely agree. I probably would have on my on its face been like, yeah, I agree with you. Standardized testing is not great, but I wouldn't have had uh, that way of thinking about it. Ken Stanley, I have taken up so much of your uh, evening Man, this uh, this was a great conversation. It did not disappoint. Thank you so much for joining me, man. Thank you, Vince. Yeah, this was great. Really enjoyed being here. And if people wanted to learn more about your work or find out about your book, how would they go about doing that? Uh, they can um, find my book at, well, you can look up Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. You can find the book online. Um, and in general for my work, um, you could just Google my name, um, and you'll find, you'll find actually my old page at, at the university of central Florida, which has links to, um, a lot of, uh, my publications and stuff like that, or you could find me through Google scholar. Um, so, so you can find me online pretty easily. Yeah. Your Google scholar page is a, uh, a wild ride of fun. I was just uh, perusing it earlier today. <laughs> It's fun well, to hear. Yeah. Ken Stanley, thank you so much for coming on.